0: If we get challenged by a near peer like China and the allies and the U.S. can do burden sharing and can do interoperable, truly interoperable first day of the war ops, that's a whole paradigm shift. From the Defense and
1: Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Muradian. The F-35 Lightning II is the biggest defense program in history. Tom Burbage, the man who led it through some of its toughest times, joins us to talk about the evolution of the program and lessons learned that he details in a new book he co-authored. And it's all powered by
2: GE Aerospace. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering first for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com
1: slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra intelligence and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, normally we will do all wings considered, but this week is different, isn't it? We have Tom Burbage as our guest. He
2: ran the F-35 program, he saw it in its toughest times, and we just
1: want to get right to him so we can give our listeners the most possible value. Indeed, uh, an extraordinary guest at an extraordinary time, uh, given as, as you've uh, observed, and I'm sure we'll observe during the uh, interview, it has not lost a single competition in which uh, the airplane has entered. So we've come quite a long way uh, from the sense that it was an airplane Uh, that was not going to be able to deliver. The market has spoken, hasn't it? Well, the market has spoken, and now Tom Burbage will speak. And without further ado, our guest, since its inception, the Joint Strike Fighter program to develop three versions of a common, stealthy, supersonic fighter with game-changing capabilities to replace a range of existing airplanes and do it affordably and exportably, was going to be a tall order. Indeed, it ranks as one of the most complex and expensive defense programs in history that over its 55-year lifespan is expected to cost well north of a trillion dollars. The man who took the jet from concept to production and its toughest days was Tom Burbage, an aeronautical engineer and United States Navy experimental test pilot who led the program for Lockheed Martin. He documents that journey in a new book, F-35, the inside story of the Lightning II that he co-authored with Betsy Clark and Adrian Pullman. It traces how the idea for a common, affordable, lightweight fighter became today's hottest-selling warplane. Uh, and just a quick personal note, JJ and I have known Tom for many decades, and he is a man of integrity and often brutal honesty regarding the challenges facing the program, even when it was in its darkest days. Tom, welcome to the Air Power podcast. You had the responsibility on
2: the contractor side of guiding the biggest program in military history through its most difficult times. You had a lot of experience from the first fifth generation fighter, the F-22. The U.S. Air Force and Navy are now developing their sixth generation jets. Rand, after the end of the development of F-35, did a study that said we should never do a joint aircraft again. What are the lessons that come out of that program to improve not only NGAD and FAXX, but any other major program that comes along? Or are some of the lessons being sort of overwrought because F-35 is unique?
0: That's a complicated question, uh, JJ. I saw the RAND report. I didn't put a lot of stock in it only because they're, while they're experts in looking backwards, I think the real value of the F-35 is going to occur in the future. It does give all three services the opportunity, as well as our allies, the opportunity to join and fly and fight together as a unified group, which isn't the way it really works today. Um, As far as the Europeans go, it's sort of replaced the F-16, which was the quasi-NATO standard. Now, if you look at all the European countries, and it was interesting after the invasion of Ukraine, how many of the other countries surrounding the Arctic jumped on board uh, Finland, Switzerland, Germany—they're—they're they're all now part of the F-35 right. community. So in the future, if things go the way they're currently on path to go, the F-35 will replace the F-16 as the NATO standard. And when you talk about NATO, then you talk about what's happening in the world of alliances. And if you look at the two spots in the world that are changing most rapidly, the first is probably the melting of the Arctic. That's been evidenced by the number of countries that have joined that surround the Arctic. They're all now part of F-35. And if you shift to the Pacific, where China's expansionist objectives are taking place, you know you have Japan, uh, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, and then any US forces that are deployed in the area, including the supercarriers. So there's the opportunity to have a very formidable alliance in the Pacific now, which hasn't existed in the past. So the future of the program is yet to play out. And the journey to get there has had a couple of bumps in the road. We've been pretty honest about that. We've been through, as, as you guys are well aware, have been through a lot of um, criticism. The airplane seems to be performing quite well by it, anybody that operates it. Um, just doing some things that have never been done before. A quick example is the uh, Queen Elizabeth, which uh, sailed with two U.S. Marine Corps F-35B squadrons and one RAF F-35B squadrons because the RAF didn't have enough airplanes at the time. And they deployed on a combat cruise to Syria. And then their way back through the Mediterranean, the Italians came out in their F-35Bs. And so you had on the same single day, you had three nations operating off of a UK ship. Those kind of things aren't possible with today's inventory of aircraft. So I think there are lessons to be learned. It's really hard to try and get the cultures of three services to align. I'm not sure they'll ever fully align, but they seem to be aligning fairly well today around the F-35, and then to bring allies in as participating members and to assure them that they'll get industrial participation complicates the supply chain challenges. But, but now that we've done it, I think there's some lessons to be learned. It's, there's no future program that's gonna solve all the challenges. Um, and, and I'm not even sure that Sixth uh, Gen and FXX have been fully defined in the new technologies they're pursuing. At least I haven't seen them. Again, I'm not on the inside anymore of, of, of what's happening there, but, but there's always going to be technology maturation risk. And some of that caught us on F-35 and some of that will catch future programs as nobody comes into a new program and goes right into production with all the technologies mature. If in fact you're planning for a, a, a date that's 20, 30 years in the future.
1: Was uh, Tom one of the biggest issues just the pure the too ambitious nature of the program i mean you were looking at stealth it's effectively a flying supercomputer you have to have connectivity with allies and partners you needed to make it exportable the requirements were everything from short takeoff and vertical landing to a 9g air force airplane to a navy variant that carries uh, more payload you amortized the fully burdened cost for you know, 55 years uh, of the existence of the program. And then, you know, it was sold as an airplane as opposed to a game-changing capability, right? So people still make that ridiculous argument that it doesn't perform well. Anybody who's seen this jet perform at the Paris Air Show, I mean, short of the, you know, F-22, nobody was putting on a demonstration like that. Were we just too ambitious in the way that the program was executed and framed and sold and
0: I think you can uh, find a large community that felt it was a bridge too far. You know, and part of that's cultural jealousies about roles and missions. I think there was a roles and missions uh, shifting that, that was envisioned as part of this when the Marines picked up a first day of the war stealthy fighter. There's lots of factors that came in. And, you know, there's always a residual resistance to anything new. You know, the whole stealth application had to come out of a hangar and go to sea. That was probably one of the biggest challenges on the program. Two of the three variants were going to go to sea and live in a saltwater environment with no humidity-controlled hangars to do coating. So we had to find a whole new way of doing that. And the the maturity of the various technologies kind of spanned the spectrum from not so mature to very mature, and then there were lots in between. And they had to complete, you know, their process of maturing while we were still trying to develop and build the airplane so there was also a requirement to review all the manufacturing processes you know a lot lot of changes happened there first time we had the computer 3d um, engineering and design capability so uh, there was just lots of things that all had to come together at the same time i don't think you're going to ever find a situation where that's not the case if you're designing for a requirement that's 20 years in the future I don't know what the current projected IOC dates are for the NGAD or the FXX, but I mean, it's beyond probably 2035, 2040, I don't know. And certainly the F-35 took a little bit longer because a lot of the premises in the beginning, or I think perceptions may be a better word that we were gonna have a common airplane and you could perform all three services missions in the same airplane. Anybody who's technically a student knows that's not possible, but the general public perception was we're just going to crank these things out like a cookie cutter, and some will go to the Navy, some will go to the Marines, and some will go to the Air Force, when, in fact, the structural requirements were quite different. Sitting in the cockpit, they're all the same. Building the structure was quite different. So so all those things kind of fit in, and, and, and that's what you get. So, so, so the early premises of the program may have misled some. The heavy dependence on modeling and simulation instead of actual flight tests was another one that got completely reversed once the program got going. Everybody wanted to test the airplane in their own test communities. We had, I think we had every test community in the world involved. And there was not a huge dependence on modeling and simulation. That changed the cost dynamic of the program, as as you know. So I think in retrospect, the program is a good case study for future programs. I think the benefits of doing it have not been calculated yet in terms of um, the ability for interoperability across all three services and the allies, the ability to burden share the cost of future combat and peacekeeping operations, all those kind of things, they haven't been judged yet, you know, because they all haven't happened yet. So you almost have to project yourself. There's a thousand F-35s out there at the end of this year. There's 19 countries involved in the program, probably 12 of them operating airplanes on home soil. I'm not sure those numbers are exactly right, but that's kind of the order of magnitude when they start operating together. And if we get challenged by a near peer like China, and the allies and the U.S. can do burden sharing and can do interoperable, truly interoperable first day of the war ops, that's a whole paradigm shift. That hasn't happened yet because we're not at that point in the program yet. So I don't think the judgment factor, in Rand was several years ago before we were even close to doing that. So I think the judgment factor is one that needs to be reserved just a little bit longer to see whether the true payoff happens.
2: If we go back nearly 30 years, and we were all working on or near this program at that time, you had the Air Force and Navy working together on the common, affordable, lightweight fighter. The Marines had a very different requirement. They were doing their own thing called a Sovol. In 1994, Congress ordered that those two programs be put together and that a single airplane fulfill all those requirements. That obviously complicated your design of X-35 but how much did it affect execution of the whole program going forward?
0: I think it affected the competition during the X-plane days, and it probably affected Boeing more than Lockheed Martin because the Navy had a pretty substantial change in their requirements during that period. I think there was a third program, which I actually was part of for Lockheed, which was called AX, which was the Navy variant of the F-22, that kind of ebbed and flowed and died during that same period of time. So there was a number of programs where the where the requirements merge was one of the most complicated things in the beginning. All the services wanted to achieve their own individual requirements, but there had to be some compromises. And who makes those decisions? There was a very comprehensive effort, mostly on the part of the Joint Program Office, government side, to work with all the COCOMs and TICOMs and all the different operating units to try and distill the. Requirements down to something that was achievable, even though it wasn't achievable at the moment. At least you could, you had a vision of you could get there at some point. This was during the uh, the JAST part phase of the program, and then the um, the X airplanes really were just there to gather flight data, flight characteristic data that verifies what you are saying in your proposal. It wasn't meant to be a competitive fly off. It sort of turned out that way. Certainly, in the media portrayed it that way, and then. When the contract was awarded, you know, we were all at minimum manpower and we had the contract was awarded very rapidly. You probably know the announcement was made on a Friday and by Monday we were under a contract Mm -hmm. that was not negotiated. And part of that was driven by the post 9-11 diplomatic objective to form the Coalition of the Willing, let the allies be part of F-35, even though it wouldn't play in the uh, Iraq-Afghanistan area because of the time element, it still was a bonding um opportunity i think for allied diplomacy and then all of a sudden the gun had gone off or under contract and we had to staff up unbelievable numbers of people real quick Um, so all those things were early factors you know and then and then the order in which we built the airplane was another factor you know as you probably recall we built the sent what we thought was the walk don't run build a simple one first that's the air force airplane build the one that's closest to it geometrically that's the marine corps airplane and the Navy wasn't all that excited in the beginning anyway, so we'll build theirs last. They wanted theirs later anyway. Well, then we found out projecting the weight, we are building the first one, projecting the weight of the second one, that we had some weight issues on primarily driven by the way we were trying to man- manufacture the airplane. And we probably weren't gonna meet our requirements for the Stovall jet. And that caused an 18 month change in the order of build and design where Stovall went first and then Air Force and then Navy. That was the first inflection point where we felt the program was under real threat from a cost standpoint, because that's not easy to do from a cost standpoint. Um, It also, if you recall, the budget for the program was funded under two separate line items. One was the R&D line and the other one was the production line. And we had an early production ramp up in the early days to get up, get the program out there quicker. And then the funding was taken from the production line to pay the additional bills in the R&D line which really stretched out the early years of the program. So all those dynamics fit in and they're not easy to understand from a taxpayer standpoint or even from the DOD standpoint. Services felt that it was consuming too much of their budget early on and stuff like that. I don't think you'll find that sentiment there today. I think now that the airplane's maturing and it's out there in numbers, you're seeing much greater acceptance. But anything new that comes along is going to have the cultural resistance of the incumbent.
1: Let me just parenthetically ask you about the Navy. You know, you, you mentioned this, and you and I talked about this for very many years. The Navy was very reluctant about this program, and to this day, if there is something negative about the program, it generally has a tendency, unfortunately, of coming out of the Navy, uh, whether it was the trillion-dollar cost number that was uh, popularized you know, that stealth can't work on ships. And indeed, there were those who told me, hey, the Navy's got to be part of uh, the program if it's going to effectively kill it. And, and several times the service did mount very sophisticated campaigns to try to uh, kill it, right? Kill the Bravo first, you know, once you let go of that anchor, the chain is the Charlie, and then, you know, the whole thing goes overboard. And as one person put, put it, hey, the zoomies can be stuck with this airplane. How big of a challenge was that, Tom, throughout the program? The fact that you had a partner that could actually benefit enormously from that capability and people in the navy who feel the capability know how much they like it but they still don't like the f-35 and would like to go to the faxx instead how difficult was that
0: it was very challenging in the beginning uh vago they all the rumor you know we are going to burn the flight deck and all the different rumors that came around it turned out not to be true um, were all factors in the public press. And one of the things that was interesting on the program was during those days, which were the early to mid 2000s, was the same time as the rise of social media and critics were able to connect. You know? So the critic in the Netherlands was partnered up with Cop and Goon in Australia and the criticism, the chorus of critics in the program grew and very few people really understood what was going on with the program. The Navy had a cultural challenge in the beginning because the Naval Air Systems Command um, has the uh, legislative right to introduce any new airplane into the Navy. And even though the Joint Program Office was staffed by mostly Nav Air people, there, there was a core Nav Air group that really felt they were the ones that should be developing this airplane, not the Joint Program Office. And that became a bit of a factor. There were criticisms that, that came out about the program. In the early days that we felt were unwarranted, oftentimes we didn't even see them until they had had been released to the press and stuff like that. So we we kind of were fighting that battle all along. They weren't sure that you could build a stealthy airplane that was carrier suitable. They weren't sure you weren't going to build an airplane that required extensive maintenance to operate on a flight deck. Turns out that both of those have turned out to be not to be true. The airplane is very, very good in the carrier landing pattern the maintenance of the stealth characteristics is almost non-existent on a ship because of the way we've done the composite structure on the airplane. So all the rumors, and it creates a sense of rejection early on that you just have to have the stamina to fight the daily fight as strong as you can and get through that phase and to get people to understand what you're really delivering. What really also set it off was the Marine Corps was so staunch about getting a replacement for their Harriers. They were failing fast. They were barring Harriers from other countries that were sunsetting them. And uh, you know they, they really needed their inventory or their, their Marine Corps Air Force, if that's the right way to call it, was under some threat. So they were very staunch supporters of going with the F-35B, even though the mother Navy, Department of Navy covers both of those was very, I think concerned that it may compromise the roles and missions of the supercarrier fleet if you in fact had the same capability on a small L-class carrier. That was one of the ongoing debates and dialogues that was occurring behind the scenes. So so there was an incentive for the big ship Navy to not spend this much money on the next generation airplane and protect, you know, the the concept of the supercarrier. That entered the fray and there's a good bit about that in the book, about how the cultural challenges in the early days, the fights that the Marine Corps had, and the, the strength that they brought to the table and the congressional support that they had were critical factors in keeping the Navy on track. Now that the airplane's out there, and it's been through Lamore, it's been through the weapons schools, I think there's a growing understanding that this is the airplane the Navy needs to have if they want to be relevant on the first day of a war. Um, so I think the support element is growing, and um, I, I think we're pretty comfortable that the Navy is is happy with the way the airplanes turned out. How NGAD and, and FXX go to the Navy is another big question. If it's going to be a multi-service airplane, it's going to have the same cultural challenges that we saw on F-35, in my opinion. If, uh, if those programs are... An integration program where you integrate unmanned airplanes and manned airplanes or you you integrate network connectivity more so than an airframe, then that's a whole different, that's a whole different story.
2: This was an international program from the get go. The model had always been to develop an aircraft for the United States, prove it out, then sell it overseas on JSF F-35. The potential overseas buyers were involved from the very beginning, and many of them had never been through a development program with all its ups and downs. How much did the international customers complicate matters, and to what extent did they contribute to the program's success?
0: I think they were a critical piece of keeping the program solid through its formative years, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the B-2 and you look at the F-22, they were U.S.-only aircraft, and so they're Supply chain, their industrial base wound up being the bulk of their political power, and they're built in probably forty-eight of the fifty states. Has something to do with those airplanes. On the F thirty-five, the the government-to-government agreements assured the participating allies, and there were eight of them at the time, that they could participate on the best value basis on developing the the engineering for the airplane, uh, developing the airplane, testing the airplane, and long term production uh, capability, but they had to be best value. Nobody wanted to pay a premium because somebody couldn't, you know, couldn't perform. Um, that brought in the embassies in Washington to protect their country's interest in the program uh, diplomatically. And it sort of made up for the, lo- the loss of, uh, I think, there's like 22 states or something like that, that the F-35 has supply chain activity in that can work through their congressional and senatorial factors but the embassies became a, quite a vocal particularly the UK quite a vocal help in keeping the program solid during those years when it was under threat so i think i really think the international partnership was a strength not a weakness i think their industry industries performed well once we figured out which ones could perform i think they've had long term relationships in the supply chain today and and they actually do a good bit of the manufacturing I think are engineers, when we had to do the redesign on the F-35B, the weight reduction program, uh, we were using engineers in Italy and engineers in Australia. And we coined this term, follow the sun engineering, where you we're all in the same database with whatever restrictions were in place for that country. And we'd, we'd have a full design day in Fort Worth and then turn the lights on in the UK, full design day in the UK, turn the lights on in Australia full workday. We were basically chasing the clock on normal work shifts instead of overtime for everybody. And uh, it, it, it was really good. And um, And they, their engineers are top notch in, in the groups that we were using. So we didn't lose anything by the international partnership. In fact, I think it strengthened the program in terms of keeping it solid during the tough years.
1: At the end of the day, uh, the program was unique and no prime contractor is ever going to get uh, this kind of authority, right? Uh, the government wants the data rights to everything now and indeed is willing to pay a premium in order to have those uh, data rights, for example. What were the decisions from your standpoint that were good decisions that were made by the by the Pentagon by Congress as well as the contractor? And then what were the bad decisions or mistakes that were made that just contributed to more headaches?
0: Well, um, there there was, they're all trade-offs, you know, and and during the um, budget time of the year, when the four committees are doing their thing on the house and the Senate side, my job basically moved to DC because they, they're not that informed. We used to refer jokingly to them as a 1500 mile screwdriver. People wanted to tell us how to put a certain box in the airplane. That had never been to see the airplane. So we, we had to do a lot of education with the staffers, try to get them to come visit the plant, see the airplane, talk to the people in the the plant. And remember that all eight of the partner countries had an equivalent Department of Defense and Congress and and budgeting process. So we had to keep the program, quote unquote, sold in all the partnerships. So it was a huge um, time demand. Nobody wanted to talk to the, the marketing sales guys. They wanted to talk to the people running the program. They all wanted to come to Fort Worth and audit the program, and none of that's in your budget. So we had to really carefully manage that so that those all contributed to costs we hadn't anticipated. But um, the good decisions, um, I think they, if you remember, I think it was Secretary Gates that put the Stovo program on probation for two years. And about uh, one year after he did that, Secretary Panetta took it off probation and I don't know whether that was embedded in the Navy versus Marine Corps wars going on. I don't know what caused all that. The Stovall program was actually doing pretty good at that time, at that point in time. But taking it back off probation and getting that part of the news back on track with the program, I think I think was an important factor. Um, I think the I can't call them bad decisions. I can call them impactful decisions that didn't help. Uh, and one of those was funding <laughs> funding the um, the development cost associated with the weight reduction out of the production dollars, because a lot of the particularly international suppliers purchased uh, their uh, production equipment to fill their factories on a timeline that had a production profile that then was totally flattened out for a number of years. So they had equipment in bubble wrap (laughs) waiting to put it on their floor. And, And when that happens, then you get industrial unrest, which translates to political unrest and all the rest of that. So we were, sort of fighting that bit. The bottom line is that, that, that in those days, the F-35 didn't take budget from anybody. It paid for its own problems internally, but it did suffer with the program dynamics. Um, most people think that the program cost growth in those days was funded, taken away from other programs. That wasn't the case. In fact, there was uh, quite a bit of funding that was returned back in to be, use on other programs because of the, you know, because of the slowdown in production. So So there's a lot of myths, and that's one of the things we're trying to sort out you know the the myth of the trillion dollar airplane somebody's trying to estimate the cost of ownership over a 40-year operating life of four thousand airplanes there's (laughs) a there's never been done before number one and of course as soon as somebody latched onto the trillion dollar number that became the new you know yellow sticky that got stuck on everything we did so so we we um we had to fight a lot of misimpressions I think the Marine Corps was super, you know, in terms of they, the, the generals actually came down, sat in the cockpit, looked at what we were doing. Um, they couldn't fly the airplane yet, but they they really understood what the airplane was going to bring. And then they were willing to go fight for it. Guys like uh, General Phil Breedlove, who I'm sure you, you know, who was uh, he was in the Pentagon in Op 95 and then in Vice Chief, and then he went to be the Supreme Allied Commander Europe And he was the one that was interfacing with all our allies, strong F-16 guy, strong F-35 guy. And it was that operational pat on the back where, hey, nobody can do this, but the U.S. The U.S. is going to do it. Hang in there with us. You're going to get the airplane you're looking for. That kind of coaching was so important to the program, and and the guys in those positions were willing to do it. So those were all good things. Okay. What
2: was your darkest hour on this program? And is there a decision that you'd really like to have a do-over on?
0: You know, I think we made some good decisions. um, And some of them were very controversial. I'll give you a quick example was the uh, flight control laws for the B airplane had a cultural divide. You know, you had the guys that had flown Harriers all their lives that wanted it to fly like a Harrier Harriers wear a special badge of manhood, Harrier pilots do, because it's hard to fly a Harrier, it takes a lot of training. There was a new group coming online that said, we can do this differently. What if your left hand always controlled velocity and your right hand always controlled altitude? Well, the software allowed us to do that. And and in layman's terms, what that means is the engine control goes from your left hand to the right hand when you go into the hover. Of course, that doesn't happen on airplanes like the Harrier. You only have one control of the engine. So you go from flying like a jet up and away to flying like a helicopter when you're in the hover and you're operating more than two levers with only two hands, which is why it's so hard. On the F-35, your left hand is always controlling velocity. When you wanna go forward in the hover, you put the throttle forward and louvers under the airplane make the airplane go forward, but you don't increase thrust. You wanna go up, you gotta increase thrust. You pull back on the right hand, which used to be controlling your flight controls, but the software takes care of all that now. And to the human brain, it's completely intuitive. Pilots jump from one version of the airplane to the other without special training. And I flew, I flew the airplane in the simulator. They they demonstrated this flight control technique to me, and then I went to the U.K. where they had an old Harrier, where the front seat was a Harrier, the back seat was an F-35. And I felt like I'd been flying Stovall jets all my life. And I said, we got, we've got to go this way because it's going to reduce training and have all kinds of other benefits. Well, that was completely rejected by the legacy guys They didn't uh, our stovall test pilot came in and he put his finger in my chest closed the door and said i want you to know i'm never going to fly this airplane i said well to be honest with you we're not designing it for you we're designing it for the next generation of pilots and and I, this is the right decision well that decision turned out to be the right decision it was risky but it was the right decision so we had, we went through those kinds of processes on the program you know um But the emphasis on cost of ownership from the very beginning was an important one. There's all kinds of factors. Mistakes, I think the worst, the darkest day in my time there was when I first heard, and by this point in time, I was kind of the guy that was outward facing to the customer. We had another guy running the day-to-day, and I came back from one of my trips, and they said, we got a weight problem, and we're going to have to stop what we're doing and rethink our way to get the weight out of the B airplane, or we're going to lose it. And I thought, oh my God, this is the perfect storm, you know. Um, and so that was a tr- very trying time. Um, but we, we, the government agreed to do it with us, and I think they could see the benefit of doing it right the first time. And and the fact that we did it improved all three variants markedly, um, which everybody thinks it was an improvement for the for the B airplane, but it actually improved all three. If you ask the pilots, they tell you all three airplanes are much better airplanes because we had that one more chance to go through the design get the excess weight impacts out and it, it just became better. Also, became better airplanes. So, so that was probably the darkest day, um, you know, but there was a lot of bright days. Let me
1: go to that original competition. And I know we're running short on time, but I, I would love to get your a- answer on this Lockheed Martin beat Boeing to win uh, the JSF uh, contract in 2001, as you said, and it was kind of an aggressive uh, ramp for you guys uh, after that. Some of us, knew that you were going to win because despite a brilliant marketing campaign by your competitor, <laughs> their jet, the X-32, simply didn't work. Senior Pentagon officials at the time told me that they were sort of complicit in this charade because they wanted to make sure to spur better performance from you guys and, and not sort of just sit back. How, how far in advance was it clear to you that you guys were the winner? And did the Pentagon's charade actually work because I was talking to some of your senior folks and they really weren't sure that they were gonna work. So they wanted to run through the tape. What was that period like without being disrespectful to your competitor?
0: Well, it's interesting because um when I first was working with you, Vago, I was on F-22, I think, and yeah. and my Boeing deputy was Frank Statkis. And Frank right, wanted exactly. to run the F-35 program. Yeah, so he and I are good friends. you know we worked together and then we were competitors, and we used to sit on the stage in, in a Forum where we were both talking about F thirty five and I said Frank, do you think anybody knows that we're really good friends? So uh, and we are, but um, I'll tell you there was a there was a point in time. The reason I was sent to the program and and I don't know whether it was a good reason to send me or not was because Lockheed Martin was in some trouble. You know, we had had an accounting problem, an error, and we were on a cost share contract, and the government wasn't going to give us any more money, and it was it was a significant amount of. Funds And the government was kind of upset with us. And, and General Howe came to me, um, and I knew Mike from other other times. And he said, uh, you need to go to F-35. And it was only because of my experience on F-22 and because I knew the players in the Pentagon and that kind of stuff. And they were going to basically disqualify Lockheed Martin and award the contract to Boeing. At least that was the rumor. This was during the JAS days before we built the x planes so I went to the program. I got there the day of the, the same week as the first flight of the first X airplane. And we started um, looking at the concept. You know, every, every good airplane is driven by its propulsion concept. And Stovall has been a real challenge over the course of time. And we looked at Boeing, Boeing was bringing in their, their residual development on, from the A Stovall program, like JJ said, when they combined the requirements. And they were a direct lift concept. And we had a sense, because we had developed a lift fan concept in the Skunk Works with Paul Bevilacqua, we had a sense that uh, direct lift was not combinable with stealth, and it was not really combinable with supersonic, because of the weight and balance issue, you got to have the engine over the center of gravity when you only got one engine piece in in the airplane, and that drives you to a short, stubby design. And when you have a short, stubby design, you have a difficult time hiding the engine face, which is the main thing you want to hide from a stealth standpoint. And you also have to slenderize what's behind the engine if you want to do supersonics or you get too much drag on the airplane. So all those aerodynamicists recognize that all those problems are going to be very difficult to use a direct lift concept on a stealthy supersonic fighter. And so they, the the uh, even though the lift fan concept that we were using was high risk, and we had a hard time clutching in uh, a shaft from a turbo fan that's turning at twenty six thousand RPM to a static fifty inch diameter counter rotating fan in the other plane. Right. That connection we, we blew a lot of clutches, as they say in the in NASCAR, but um, it, we were able to perfect it, and um, and that's what they obviously what we use today so we we felt that there was just enough design compromises driven by the choice of the propulsion concept that if we were going to be successful we were going to be it was going to be difficult to um even hot gas ingestion was an issue as you know with the x32 because all your thrust is thrust is being directed underneath the airplane whereas with the lift fan it's cool air and it keeps the hot air behind the inlet. So there was just all kinds of good design reasons why we felt we had a winning concept. Um, there was also the, even though it's not a factor, there was the attractiveness of the fighter, uh, not to be critical, but when you put the two airplanes next to each other, I have a picture in a presentation that I give of the two X airplanes sitting next to each other. They weren't, neither one were representative of the eventual, the X-35 was not representative of the eventual F-35 except for its general, you know, footprint on the ground didn't have weapons space it wasn't stealthy um, and the x-32 was going to go through some major adjustments that was one of their challenges was their proposal was a significantly different airplane if i recall correctly than the than what the x-32 was representing right because of the change in requirements that the navy put on the program and for other reasons but so you can you can sit there with just a photograph up on the picture and you can walk around both airplanes and you can point out the the beneficial qualities and the not so beneficial qualities. So we thought we had a better design and we had, a, and, and I, they basically agreed to continue the competition, which was important. And, you know, in the long run, um, I think the general perception was that the X35 was a superior design almost exclusively driven by the fact that they had a different, we had different propulsion concepts.
2: And did DOD urge you, once that became clear, to keep operating as if it were actually a competition?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we felt we were in a competition to the selection process. You know, once we got once we got the proposals done and everything was submitted and, you know, we were moving people off the program to save money um, and just waiting for the verdict, we felt pretty confident about it because our x-airplane had shown that the concept was viable the, it had shown that the lift fan concept was viable even though we, we had some changes we had to make with the with the final version of the airplane but yeah i think that there was there was clearly the sense that this is a competition and you better win it you know that we started out under the acquisition reform guidelines and the proposals were page limited to 100 pages well that quickly went away <laughs> And I think our proposal was 25,000 pages when it was finally submitted. So there's nobody uh, anywhere that's actually read the whole proposal. They, you know, they divide it up into, into sections, and then you know, <laughs> subject matter experts get a section and they read one section against the other, and then they come back with a grade, add all the numbers up. That's kind of how it's done today because nobody can read the whole thing. You know, we had we had lab test results going on everywhere, software results, radar results. And then the X airplane results were all, it was just reams and reams of data, but th- there was no way to follow the acquisition reform guidelines. Both of us had very extensive proposals. So and, we, and in the end, we won, even though uh, I, think, I think we felt confident, but we did feel that we were in a competition to the end.
2: Well, speaking of competition, the F-35, at least to date, has won every major competition it's been part of. Demand is higher than the program right. actually can meet right now. How satisfying is that in retrospect, to see the amount of work that you and your team put on get recognized around the world?
0: Oh, I think it's, I mean, there is no real comparison. If you want um, a first day of the war, interoperable, you know, coalition-based air power instrument, There's there's no other real option in the world. Um, and I think that's recognized. And, and the the argument was very difficult to shift from cost to value, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's such a focus on the tr- the number trillion, you know, and there's such a focus on, on that. The, the bottom line is that the program, every partner country, even the ones that were partners in the beginning, were holding competitions to, for production because there was no commitment for production when you joined the program. Mm-hmm. So in order to satisfy their political masters, they had to show that they had competed and chosen the best airplane, and of course the, the F-18 was in every competition. And the, oftentimes, if it was Northern Europe, it was the Saab or the Gripen or something else. The F-35 has never lost a competition just based on cost. Forget capability. So I mean, if you look at the at the new F-16 or the new F-15EX, they're 10 percent more expensive than an F-35. You know, and they're they're essentially not first day of the war aircraft. You know, the, the fourth. or whatever generation they're called um, still is not fully capable to do the interoperability, to do the internet information exchange, or to do the stealth mission. So yeah, it's never lost on cost, even despite all the, everything you hear about cost. It's funny, when we did the book, if you look at the opening, you know, the advertisement for a lot of that's done by the editor and, you know, it gets, it picks up tabs like the most expensive project since the Manhattan Project. Well, yeah, okay. It's also that that number that you're referring to includes projection of 4,000 airplanes and operating them over a 40-year life. You know, that's a little different cost equation. It's got a few more terms in the equation than than, <laughs> than a you know a single focus program. So, so cost is a re- is a real uh, issue in trying to explain it to people that don't understand how cost is calculated and. When you add 18 months to a flight test program then you have the cost of, of on the government side of operating all those flight test centers and all the additional flights and all the fuel that goes with it and yada 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 so so it's 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 not the cost of the airplane it's the total mm-hmm. cost of completing the project you know that drives these big uh, estimates
1: uh i should uh point out to the audience that that trillion dollar number uh came after the department you know did something like it was a 33-year life airplane to like a 55 year life airplane, and there and that last 20 years was a lot more money uh, actually in the life of any airplane. Anyway, it's just uh, bizarre. I I still think that while you get award uh, points for honesty to amortize that fully burdened <laughs> cost, I I'm still gonna have this argument, But but it ended up not being an issue, so maybe you were you were right in the end of this. Because <laughs> I was, <laughs> you know, like when people would make direct comparisons, you know, you'd be like, no existing airplane is, but you know, it's. Oil and consumables. It, it doesn't have right. all of the, you know, Alice costs are not the factored into, you know, or the replacement costs of squadron computers. I mean, it, it's, it's honest, but it also can uh, lead to sticker shock. I should also tell the audience, right, the third lever in the cockpit of a, Har- a Harrier is the throttle, the stick, and, and of course, the, the little bike chain assembly that uh, moves, moves your nozzles. I, I want to ask one last uh, question, not to end it a little bit on a down note, but to, just to get your sense on this. The development of this plane, it it is incredible that a thousand of them are already out there, right? And it's funny that some people treat this as as if it's a development article and it's not a warplane, whereas the Israelis have used it as a warplane. We have deployed it worldwide uh, in incredible ways because of the capability of the jet. It is a flying supercomputer uh, and it is a flying capability. It is a fighter plane, but it does things that no other airplane uh, can do. Uh, and used the right way, it's completely game-changing. But it has also taken very long to develop. The Tech Refresh 3 is late, the Block 4 is late. Those are the versions, the airplane uh, that the customer, uh, the U.S. customers in most demand. A lot of the older airplanes are derided as not particularly capable because they were earlier airplanes. And indeed, Harry Blott decades ago told me like, well, we're just going to get, you know, not effectively not really use those first hundred couple airplanes. Uh, which kind of is problematic for any policymaker. Now we have development of new airplanes like NGAP, like FAXX, and collaborative combat aircraft. Are they going to end up curtailing the F-35 or its future? Or do you see a bright future for it, especially if you can get a new engine into it, something we've also discussed a million times, right? What's your sense on what the future of the airplane is? Or did it arrive a little bit late to have the kind of bright future that everybody envisioned for it.
0: That's a really good question, uh, Vago. Uh, and I don't I don't know obviously, but I'll take a guess at it. you know there's there's a thousand airplanes roughly by the end of this year they're anticipating having a thousand airplanes out there. Um, and they're still in low rate production. you know the term LRIP is still going on. There's not a multi-year contract yet which would drive costs further down. And even though we're buying from our supply chain in lots of two or three years, um, the government's reticent to ask for it and the is resident resisting um, to approve a budget that commits the next couple of Congresses, you know. So it's just, it's, and in the past, it hasn't been that big issue because the numbers weren't that big. But now the numbers are big, you know, we're, we're at 150 year, we're probably going to go a little higher, um, and three years at 150 years, a lot of money, so... It's a non-traditional amount of money, almost historic. So there, there's issues where we cannot achieve economies of scale or economies of commonality that we had hoped to achieve. And that could have an impact on the longevity of the airplane. I, I, I don't know. I'm not real familiar with early airplanes being, uh, you know, the airplane was designed to accept uh, software updates going forward. I know that um, update four is driven by some uh, challenging and changing requirements. Um, and that's always hard when you have a software intensive airplane. And I'm not making excuses for anybody. I know it's uh, right. late getting where it needs to be. I do know there's a desire to have more uh, power in the airplane, not not from a thrust standpoint, but more power to use some new generation weapons, laser type stuff. And that drives you to reconsidering the power plant, uh, because that's where the power is generated. and And that's very challenging to do, particularly in airplanes that are weight sensitive, because <laughs> you have to balance all that with the lift fan and everything else. So there's, there's some complexities in almost taking F-35 to the next generation version of the F-35, but I'm sure it's that's going to happen. I think, you know, we're we're um, a fourth of the way, maybe a third of the way there to the initial original projections of the airplane, which were some, somewhere around 3,200 or 3,400. It didn't take into account potential foreign military sales at that time, and they've certainly seen a spike in that. Um, Even though the international customers don't buy in anywhere near the same quantities as the U.S., um, they're still an important part of the follow-on program. Will we be able to continue to beat the software magic of updating all the airplanes with a single OFP release? Um, I hope so. That was actually one of the basic premises that when we went to update, we would update the airplanes and the simulators without... A whole bunch of different variations of the operational flight program. That's certainly the plan, um, but there are cha- there are technical challenges to that, particularly when certain operators want to put different equipment in certain spots in the airplane. And there's there's an evolution of the airplane that I know is being considered and uh, that brings more capability into it as you go forward. So so that, that will become a competing factor, in my view, to what happens with FXXX, what happens with NGAD early projections of those airplanes and their schedules are, are somewhat problematic in terms of, can you really do those schedules? Uh, one article I read said they already have something flying in 18 months. So I don't know whether that was a 3D printer version or what. You know, I, I don't know how you do that in 18 months. You can't even get the engineering team established for a large project in 18 months. So I, I don't know. Maybe somebody's found the magic elixir that brings brand new capability on quickly. But on the other hand... The capability of this airplane doesn't get fully exploited for another, you know, five or ten years when when it starts operating in the fashion that it was meant to operate in. So, so I, I don't know. It's a it's a bit fuzzy out there. Um, I know there's a lot of work going on. The adaptive engine guys are working that hard. Um, um, how do you make an engine efficient in non-combat type things, but then can call on the high high thrust efficiencies when you get into when you need it to extend range and things like that? So there's all kinds of new concepts that are being worked on and technology is changing rapidly. It's gonna be interesting to watch it play out. I believe that the airplane is gonna achieve its initial original objectives and probably more. If you just look at the F-16 experience, you know we thought that would be out of production a while back. It's still going strong. Um, it's way over what it was originally projected to do. And the F-18 communities, the Finland's and the Switzerland's of the world are all now jumping on F-35. So that's sort of increased the family. So we'll just have to see. I do think that they won't have the customer set that an F-16 or C-130 has just from the classification of capabilities of the airplane, but, but um, it's still going to be large. Tom Burbage,
2: so very good to talk with you again. The book is F-35, the inside story of the Lightning II, and there's no one in a better position to tell that story. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power podcast.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Bob uh, will look forward to catching up with you in D.C.
2: Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.